we've been uh, walking through this book, and um, if you were to poll the audience, they're probably discouraged uh, just a little bit. If you've spent any time in this book, you're probably hanging out there. What I love happens, or what happens here in chapter 5, is if, if you have a bold title in your Bible, mine says, Caution in God's Presence. Um, which also still sounds like a negative, and so we're just rolling into more negative space. But since we know the end of the story, okay, and if, if you're new to church, um, I, I don't want to just assume that you understand what we're talking about here. They're, they're functioning in an Old Testament system that we're going to, he's going to highlight some things that was, there was basically a lot of laws that they had to follow and, and how, they had to, how they had to function in order to Avoid God completely wiping them off the planet is basically what this was. Um, and and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to circle back around to this, but, but why God put the law, why God put structure into this one, because he knew that it was surrounded by sinful human beings. But two, if they followed the, the commands and the ordinances of the Lord, as we read in the, in the Torah, that they would be not only a, a blessing to God, but they would be a blessing to the other nations. As they honored the Lord with their actions, that would echo into other spaces and people would respond by following Christ. And so it was, it's weird to say following Christ, by following God. And I say that because we know the end. And so when, when he begins to talk about these things in an Old Testament context, there's this hope that rises up in me because we already know what Jesus did. Solomon at this point doesn't. He's just functioning in this. All is vanity. All is meaningless. All is pointless. Gathering money, pointless. Sleeping with a lot of women, pointless. Getting an education, pointless. Politics, meaningless. He's just going after everything. And now, at the beginning of chapter 5, he goes after, like, the worship services. And so it's, he's taking this turn just to, like, ride into the church and going, is, is this even pointless? But what he, what he does is he, approach, he, he goes after our approach to worship and is putting us in check. The, the hope that's rising up here after a lot of just like, I feel beat down by the first four chapters of Ecclesiastes, is now this takes a turn into, I know the end. I know what Jesus has done. There's a hope that rises up in our worship that's different than some of these other things. Now, the hope that's in Christ applies to all of this. But what he's done here has kind of taken a turn because of what Jesus has done for us. His sacrificial death on the cross by paying for our sin, by providing a way for us to have access to the Father, by tearing the veil, all of those things are now true. And it changes our approach to worship. And here's the problem. What he's saying here is so applicable to what we, like our current uh, environment, our current spiritual environment, especially, I think, in America. And, I, and I'm not taking shots at America, but I think... Our approach to, to our relationship with God, our approach to religion, if I want to say that, our approach to church, uh, religious things, kind of has a lot of the same feel as this. A couple years ago, maybe a little bit more than that, some of you probably saw this, there was this social media clip that started floating around from uh, our friends down in Houston, um, Joel and Victoria Olstein, Olstein, I don't know how to say the last name, Smiler and uh, his wife. Um, <clears throat> She said this. I'm not going to attempt to do that accent. Um, when, when we obey God, we're not doing it for God. We're doing it for ourselves. Because God takes pleasure when we're happy. When, when, you, when you come to church, 
when you worship him, you're not doing it for God, really. You're doing it for yourself. And then what followed after that, because, because the internet's pretty savage, um, was, the, was the clip from Billy Madison. <laughs> that guy was on that game show, and he looked at him, and he goes, that, what you have just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things that I have ever heard. And then it goes on to say, like, we are all dumber now that we have heard it, and may God have mercy on your soul. I was going to play it, but I felt that that was a little aggressive, maybe for the audience. Some of you are like, please, just go, we'll, we'll look at it later, okay? Um, you're going to go YouTube it anyway, and here's the issue, and I'm glad I'm surrounded by a bunch of people who politely boo at that. While it is, it is so easy for us to hiss at her, it is so easy for us to give Mrs. Osteen a hard time with this, but, but you know that we all think this way sometimes. We do. We may not utter them out loud. We may not have a platform with you know, 20,000 people in the audience and a couple million watching around the world to say something like that that's going to be captured and then mocked for a while. But probably in our own way, we, we do that. The devotional books that you are consuming... Um, a lot of the Bible study lessons that you may hear, a lot of the ways that even you're praying and thinking about the things of the Lord, probably lean into this a little bit more because you're going to hear things like, you need to be brave like David, and you, you need to be strong in prayer like Daniel, and you need to, be, you need to grow up to be a better father than Eli. And, and a lot of you are like, well, what's wrong with that? The, the entire issue is that it's surrounded by this word you, that you need to be these things and you can grow to be these things and you need to be like these things. Okay, striving to be like the heroes of the faith. In the grand scheme of things, like I get it. But here's the cool part about that is that God isn't so confined that you are one of nine types in the world. You're not a number. If you are a number, you're one in about, I don't know, 70 billion. I'm just going to give that number. The people that have lived and died and existed because you are beautifully and wonderfully made and you're crafted, you're crafted with a purpose and God made you exactly how you are. And so it, instead of striving to be like Eli or Daniel or David, you should strive to be like you while striving to be like Christ and allowing those things to come alive in you in unbelievably beautiful ways. And so it's not just modeling our lives after something. It's not trying to become a better you. It's trying to become more and more like Jesus every day. This is your sanctification process. And so here's the danger. Like it's possible for a lot of us to go to church and to hear a little bit about God and a whole lot about you and leave feeling like really satisfied. And here's some of the other things that we hear. I mean, I, I have our worship pastor in the room. And so, can you sing this song that I really like? Can we have more organ up there? I, I wish he would tell more jokes. Um, did you hear how loud the drums were? Man, I wish there was a kid's choir at that church. Like, entire worship services now become planned around the constant concerns of the worshiper rather than God. And this is the danger of church, and this is the danger that 
that Solomon like points out really, really clearly to us. Because if worship becomes all about my desires and my likes and my preferences and what I want, then I'm the one being worshiped. And that is idolatry. And I don't want to overstate this, but there's a verse that we're going to read that kind of points this out. When churches become more focused on that than on God, he has a tendency to shut their doors. He has a tendency to wreck their leaders. He has a tendency, because God's a glory hog, and rightfully so, to destroy those things that are getting in the way of his glory being known. And when worship becomes about man more than it becomes about God, then you're, you're walking in idol worship, and it's just a dangerous place to be. I had a conversation a couple weeks ago with a guy, 40-year-old, started coming back to church when he was 35. He, he told me, he's like, well, I, I knew about Jesus, and I followed Christ, I think, when I was in high school, and I've, I haven't for a while, but I'm coming back as a single guy, 35, faithful in tithing, faithful in attendance, uh, he said, faithful in, in, in reading the Bible, all of those things, but he's thinking about leaving the church. I was like, why? So when I came back at 35, I was unmarried, and I was really hoping that God would give me a wife, and I don't have her yet. And so he wasn't worshiping God. He was worshiping, trying to worship somebody who was maybe going to give him something that he wanted. He wasn't just worshiping God for who God was. He's like, I'm going to bring this agenda into the room and see what God does with it. And if he doesn't do what I want him to do with it, then I'm going to abandon this and I'm going to go somewhere else. And this is the danger that we walk in. This is kind of what he's, he's talking about here. So we're going to read the first six verses, and then he's going to give us a closing in verse 7. We're just not going to get there yet. So in verse 1, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Better to approach in obedience than to offer the sacrifice as fools do. For they ignorantly do wrong. Do not be hasty to speak and do not be impulsive to make a speech before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Just as dreams accompany much labor, so also a fool's voice comes with many words. When you make a vow to God, don't delay fulfilling it because he does not delight in fools. Fulfill what you vow. Better that, you, better that you do not vow than that you vow and do not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth bring guilt on you, and do not say in the presence of the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry with your words and destroy the work of your hands? Question mark. Religion, religion is empty. I'm, I'm just going to make this as, as bold of a statement as I can. Religion is, is empty if we do not fear God. Religion in and of itself is just empty if we do not fear God. We fall into this like formal kind of relationship with God that becomes routine and then it leads us to just foolish behavior in some sort of attempt to manipulate God to fit into a box that we want him to fit into. And Solomon points out three big ways that we do this. They're kind of just religious activities in his day that are also religious activities in our day that are meaningless apart from a deep fear of God and they're meaningless apart from a deep faith in God. This is what he does. The first one is offerings. Guard your steps when you go into the house of God. This is when you go to worship. Better to approach in obedience than to offer the sacrifice that fools do. God created God created us, God created man to have an intimate relationship with him. Okay, this is the beginning. 
The issue is, is that we have this sin nature in us that causes us to be unbelievably rebellious and causes a separation in that relationship. Genesis 3 kind of clearly defines that separation when he kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden. He puts some cherubim there to guard the entrance and he gives them a weapon. It's a fiery sword, which means if you want to try to get back in there, I think you're probably going to die. I can also make a theological argument that fiery sword is the word of God and it's going to, it's going to cut deep and it's going to separate. And it's going to, going to draw out your sin and the way that you get back into the garden is just for the word to just destroy you and then you can get back in there. But, but here's, here's this separation. I'm going to put an angel to guard and he's going to have a weapon and you're not getting back into this. But then as you begin to journey through the Old Testament, God, in his grace, he says, I still love you and I still want a relationship with you and so I'm going to have... I'm going to have a temple, I'm going to have this like tabernacle, this, this ark, I'm going, to have, I'm going to have a spot where my glory dwells, and so you can have some sort of access, sort of in a small way, to me in my presence, if you would just lean into it. But we still know that like our sin has separated us from that, and so not everybody is able to go in there. There's unbelievably specific regulations on the worship of God and what can and can't be done. In fact, if you read it, as you begin to digest all of Scripture, 2 Chronicles 3.14 says that the cherubim were woven into the fabric that separated the, the spaces. And so the cherubim that were on guard at the garden, I don't know how this works. I don't know where they got the angel fabric. They, they wove the cherubim into that curtain. So they were still on guard there. This most holy place in the temple is, is a place that really only one can go into. The Gentiles couldn't even come close to it, as you begin to read through that. Women could only go so far into it. Jewish men could only go so far into it. The high priest was the only one that could really go into the holy place. He could only go in there one time a year, and when he was in there, he had to carry blood with him in order to be in there. And they put bells on his robe just in case he fell down dead. Apparently that happened enough that they were like, well, he's been quiet for a while. What do we do? Well, I'm not going in there after him. I'm going to die. So they were just like, well, let's tie a rope to his leg, and if we don't hear the bells moving anymore, we can at least drag his body out. That's how serious this was. God... God doesn't play. I'm just going to say that. He's, he's real serious about his rules. You guys, you guys know this story in 2 Samuel chapter 6. When they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah reached out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen had stumbled. He has a deep care for this, this, this ark, this box, and it's being led by these goofy animals, and one of them trips, and it begins to fall down, and he goes, no, like he goes to save it, as most of us would do. And as soon as he touched it, the Lord's anger burned against him, and he what? Died right in front of it. And if I'm there, I'm like, bro, God don't play. Why? Why did he die? God Told them not to touch it. Numbers 4.15, Aaron and his sons are to finish covering the holy objects and all of their equipment. Whenever the camp is to move on, the Kohathites will come and carry them, but they are not to touch the holy objects or they will die. It's just like really clear. You touch it, you're dead. 
He's serious about those things. He's, he's serious about his laws. He, he puts specific order into these things. And, and it also requires this shedding of blood. And he's going, hey, you bring in a sacrifice of fools when you make this sort of like a ritual in order to gain God's favor for you, like you're just checking boxes. And when, when, when the heart of a worshiper is not near to God but far from God, it just becomes like this is the thing that I do. The Israelites, this is just the, the thing that I do. But religious form, apart from deep spiritual substance, repulses God. This is Revelation chapter 3, hot and cold kind of thing. He said, I would rather you just be completely cold or I'd rather you be completely hot because if you straddle the fence where you kind of are religious but you don't have any heart behind it, you are Jesus vomit. It says he wants to spit you out of his mouth. And that's how serious he takes this. And this is the thing that we do. Like, you know, we can fall into this rut of just going through the motions because it's the thing that, that people in Bryan College Station do. You go to Tuesday church and you go to Wednesday Bible study and you go to Sunday church and you do all of these things. And if you do that, you get the check mark beside your name and you're a good little Christian girl or boy. But there's, there's no heart behind this. And so day after day and week after week and year after year and decade after decade, all of a sudden you sit in that and you go, my life has never been changed. I've just been in this this routine. And that literally makes you foolish. Better to approach in obedience than to offer the sacrifice that fools do. And the, the hard part about being a fool is that you don't know that you're a fool. That's why you're a fool. You understand that logic? They're calling you a fool because you don't understand that the thing that you're doing is separating you from God and it's making things worse. 2 Samuel 15, 22, Samuel says this, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the Lord? Look to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. This is what he's after. He's after your obedience more than sacrifice. And what's cool is as we read the Shema and then we read verses like that, that word obey literally says listen. It literally says Shema. And the idea here that we continue to, to preach from that is that we listen with the result of obedience to do what God says. And this leads us to the first part of what Solomon is saying here, is that God is after your obedience. And I mentioned this a little bit before, and this is, this is where this comes alive, and I think this should stir your affection so much. Your obedience is not just for you, okay? Your obedience in following Christ is not just for like your own good and to make you feel good about that. As you faithfully pursue Jesus and you obey what he calls you to, it started in the Old Testament where it says, if you obey my laws, then the nations will be blessed. And it continues through what we see in the New Testament as if you obey and you follow Christ, hear me, people will come to know Jesus. It's just the order that he puts on it. He's like, hey, you're going to become a Christ follower? Great. Okay, now here's the Paulian thought. It's better to be in heaven than to exist on this earth. We understand that. Like I, and if God didn't have a purpose for you, it's incredibly mean for him to leave you on this planet because it's just not fun. Some of you are like, well, it's kind of fun. Saturday probably wrecked your fun, right? And you're going to have those ups and downs. But it's better for us, as Paul says, just to go ahead and just fast forward and head to heaven. But you've been left here for a purpose. As you faithfully follow Christ and you obey the things that he's calling you to, then the nations, everyone's going to see that and go, I want that. You have a witness. 
It's what the Israelites were called to do in the Old Testament. It's what we are called to do in the New Testament. Your obedience, yes, is for you, but your obedience is so much for them. That's what he's calling us to. And so when you walk into God's presence and you go, I'm going to do these things so that I earn his favor so that he does stuff for me, you are foolish because the order is this. You obey him, and more than likely, you're going to grow and be encouraged in that, sure, but other people are going to come to know Christ. That's the order. So he goes from obedience, and then what does he say? Verse 2, do not be hasty to speak. Do not be impulsive to make a speech before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Just as dreams accompany much labor, so also a fool's voice comes with many words. He moves on to this topic of prayer. He goes, here's your offerings. What are you bringing? But also, what are you saying? It's like, don't be hasty with your mouth. Don't spew a lot of words before God thinking that you're accomplishing something. Now, he's speaking of the verbal and like the internal dialogue that's going on with us. He's like, when you pray, this is your approach because you got to understand this. You're sinful and you are frail and you think you're going to come before God with a lot of words. You're going to stir his heart towards something. Understand who you are. Jesus warns us of this in Matthew chapter 6. He says, when you pray, don't babble like the idolaters. See how he connects us. Jesus is smart, smart and all the rest of us. How he connects like this idol worship that was happening in the offering part of verse one to our prayers. When you pray, don't babble like the idolaters since they imagine that they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them because your father knows the things that you need before you ask him. This is, a, this is a, such a comforting verse for us that you can go before God and go, here's the cool part about my God. He already knows what I'm gonna ask and he already knows what I'm gonna need. And so I could just approach him and go, And just sit in it. And God's like, yeah, I got you. Like, how comforting is that to you that you're going to stir up the right prayer? Because some of you are like, I'm just scared to death to pray out loud. It's not a biblical command. Like, it, it's, it's an encouragement to us when you do. But a lot of times it's just screaming like, hey, be quiet. God already knows. This, here's the presumption that he's going after. The fool thinks that if we say enough words and we say them with enough syllables and we say it fast enough and we use the word Lord enough times and maybe throw in a couple King James Version thou's that we take control of the conversation and we can steer God wherever we want him to go. And the issue is not your words. The issue is your heart. And so when we, when we begin to think and, and sometimes I think this fits, but when we begin to think of our heavenly father like our earthly parents, that if we ask at the right time with the right tone, maybe when they're distracted, we're gonna get what we want. That's not how God functions. One, he's not distracted. And, and he's not gonna operate in that way just for you. Solomon says the reason to be reserved in prayer is because dreams come from much work. This is a, it's kind of a strange verse if you read it, verse 3, just as dreams accompany much labor, so also a fool's voice comes with many words. What, what he's saying there, he's like, yeah, a, a fool speak, fools speak a lot, and we know that they speak a lot, and they love the sound of their own voices. That's cool, but what's the connection here with this dream? Basically saying, hey, much work makes you tired, which leads to sleep, which leads to dreams, and dreams are not real. So you're living in a fantasy world if you think that many words are going to stir the heart of God. He could have said that easier, but 
He's smart. He used big words. Instead, I think we come at God as the tax collector does in Luke chapter 18, and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's all he brought. And, and this is what I know as a dad, that, that when my children are hurting or when they're in need, they don't have to explain it to me. They don't. I can see it most of the time. I can hear it, some sort of well that they let out of their body, not a literal well that would be weird, but like a scream comes out of them, and I go, there is a need. And they didn't have to explain it. They didn't have to have words. They didn't have to tell me what hurts. They're just like, Dad. And I'm like, I got you. And I'm, I'm, I'm imperfect, and so sometimes it may take me a minute to be like, okay, what part of your body did you actually hurt? You're holding your head, but you're bleeding from your leg. And so I don't know like, what's going on. But, but they don't have to explain to me like how good they are. And they don't have to like wow me with their words. I recognize their need and I can meet that. And, and our father is greater than that. And so he says, be careful with your offerings and be careful with your prayers. Because you think your words are gonna stir the heart of God when he already knows what his children need. And then he transitions to this last one. Verse four, when you make a vow to God, don't delay fulfilling it because he does not delight in fools. Fulfill what you vow. Better that, better that you do not vow than that you vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth bring guilt on you and do not say in the presence of the messenger that it will be a mistake. Why should God be angry with your words and destroy the work of your hands? He turns his attention from offering to prayers to vows and he says, hey, when you make a vow, don't delay in filling it because God doesn't delight in fools. Vows were these pledges, especially in the Old Testament, that worshipers would make to God as part of an offering or a sacrifice process, and it would be, it would be made so that God might answer a specific request. A couple of verses, Deuteronomy 12, 11 says this, Then Yahweh your God will choose the place to have his name dwell. Bring there everything I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, the offerings of the tent, personal contributions, and all your choice offerings you vow to the Lord. Bring these things, present them to God, and make your requests, is what he's saying. Deuteronomy 23, 21 adds on to that. It says, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to keep it, because he will require it of you. And it will be counted against you as sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, it will not be counted against you as sin. Be careful to do whatever comes from your lips, because you have freely vowed what you promised to the Lord your God. You don't have to make vows. You're free to do whatever you want to. It's probably better if you don't because you're sinful and half the time you're probably not going to keep them. But if you do make a vow, be quick to follow through in that. One clear example, Numbers 21, verse 2. Then Israel made a vow to the Lord. If you will deliver this people into our hands, we will completely destroy their cities. The Lord listened to Israel's request. The Canaanites were defeated, and Israel completely destroyed them and their cities. So they named the place Hormah. So vows are made to, to gain God's favor in order to urge God to grant a specific request. And it's a biblical thing. Some of you are like, this feels weird. The worshiper could offer to God a sacrifice. They offered money. They offered property in exchange for God, like meeting that request. And so it's kind of this, if uh, I'll do this for you if you do this for me kind of thing. The, a great example, some of you know, is Hannah, barren, begs the Lord for a son, says, if you give me this child, 
I vow to you that it will be a Nazarite. And as soon as she finished weaning Samuel, she takes him to Eli, says this one's yours. She didn't delay at all. The desire of her heart was to have kids. And right after she had that child, she did what? Fulfilled her vow. This is what he's, he's calling us today. And so, and calling us to today, and this is what we see pretty often, is that we're, we're kind of terrible at this. We make these vows, we make these promises to God. God, if, you, if you'll just come through for me here, then I promise I'm going to do this in return. I'm not going to cuss anymore, God, if I can pass this math test. It's a weird vow. God, if you would take away this cancer, God, if you would give me a job, God, if she would say yes to this date, if you would give me a spouse, if you would give me kids, if you would get me out of this jam, I promise that I'm going to walk more closely with you. And the danger now, as we see back then, is that once the crisis is over, we're pretty quick to just forget about those things and just abandon those things. And this is why. We can make these empty vows because you don't understand how near God is. You don't understand how intimate the relationship you have with him. You don't understand how much he loves you. You don't understand how much his heart breaks for you. You don't understand that he hurts when you hurt. You don't understand the intimacy that's wrapped up in this relationship. And so when you make these empty promises to him, it hurts him. And, and here's the biggest, here's the cuss word. Here's a Christian cuss word for you. Here's your problem. Procrastination. We deceive ourselves into thinking that we have this like down and you make this promise with 100% feeling inside of you that you're going to do it. God, I promise you this, but then you wait and then you wait and then you wait and you procrastinate in the midst of it and then the, the thought of it just fades. And so you hear a sermon and you're convicted and inside you go, I need that. I I need to do that. I, I, I need biblical community. I need to be in Bible study. I need to confess the sin. I need to do all of those things. And then you never follow through with them. You don't take that first step. It's often when we're, when we're sharing Christ with somebody, we just pray for boldness for that person. God, would you give them boldness just to step out now? Because if they don't now, the enemy kind of wiggles his way in and we just begin to push those thoughts farther and farther back. And this is why Solomon does this. Verse five, better that you do not vow than that you vow and not fulfill it. Don't let your mouth bring guilt upon you. And, and we're good at this. Here, here's what's destroying the Christian witness. Failure in marriage. Not following through with your commitments. Parents that stand on our stage and make a commitment to raise their kid in Christ, but then worship baseball on Sunday. Losing your temper with your friends, not being the type of person that can be trusted, saying, hey, I would love to get lunch with you sometime, and then six months later going, I was supposed to get lunch with somebody. This is a good one. Hey, I'll pray for you. Challenging one. And, and when we can't follow through with our vows, a lost world is looking at it and going, they don't even believe that their God is real if they can function that way. And so what Solomon is screaming in frustration can easily just be declared over us now. He's going, hey, you should probably just shut your mouth instead of making these vows. It's going to be a stronger witness if you keep your mouth closed. That's encouraging, isn't it? 
Because it's better, than, better that than to have the messenger come knocking at your door, wondering why you didn't fulfill the vow. The, the image here, and I love this, maybe we should get this role at the church, is that there was literally a person that kept a record of the vows that were made amongst the Israelites and went door to door and said, hey, you haven't uh, fulfilled your vow yet. You want to take care of that today? It's like a, like a bill collector for vows. Just annoying everybody. And the image here is that, oh, yeah, I made that. It was an accident. I didn't mean to make that vow. I, I shouldn't have done that. It was stupid of me to do that. He's like, it's better for you just to keep your mouth closed at that point. So our mouth drags us into sin, making vows that we cannot keep. We get to say that it's a mistake. And God would rather you not make a vow than to try to excuse yourself from it and to hide from it. He would rather you just own it and confess your failure in it and lean into the relationship instead of hiding it. This is Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira illustrate this so clearly because they sell this property and they are going to give all of the proceeds. They declare, we will give all of the proceeds to the church. But what did they do? They kept some of it for themselves. And when they presented the offering dead. That should have scared the church at that point. They died because God takes vows seriously. Was it a sin for them to keep part of the money? No. What made it evil in God's eye was that they promised to give it all. They could have said, hey, I'm selling property. I'm giving you half. And the church would be like, yes, do that. Everybody do that. And they would have been celebrated. Instead, they wanted to look good, so we're going to give you all of it, but we're going to lie. We're going to keep part of it. But you think that we gave it all. And God killed them on the spot. And Solomon here is, is expressing this throughout this section. He's going, hey, it is meaningless religion if you're trying to manipulate God in the midst of your worship. He, he cannot be manipulated. And this is probably, I don't like this term, but so much of American Christianity is like this same kind of paganism where we, where we bargain with God to get what we want and and. It, we think that if we do what God wants, then he will do what we want. And so we assume that God wants us in church. And that's a right assumption, but it, there's more than that. We assume that he wants you to be a good dad or a good mom one day. That's true, but it's more than that. We assume that he wants you to be a good citizen. That's true, but it's always more than that. But we function under this little term that God blessed America because America blessed God. And that's not true. And we can't function that way. If we do what God wants, he's going to do what we want. And this is idolatry. It's kind of sorcery if you think about it. It's wickedness, and it's not the gospel. And so what do we, what do, we do with this? Solomon concludes with this really cool verse. And in my Bible, I like how it ends. Like It's rare that this happens, but the period is like the last little dot on the page. And so verse 7 ends here, and I'm going to turn the page to go to verse 8. But I like, oh magic. It, it does this in a really cool way. Verse seven, for many dreams bring futility. So do many words. So he's summarizing his little argument. Many, brings, many dreams bring futility and so do many words. Therefore, comma, fear God. Your words are dangerous. Your vows are dangerous. Your offerings are dangerous if they're not grounded in fear and faith in God. And that's why he says, therefore, 
fear God. This is what he's calling us to. And we should humbly submit and like stand in awe of God through Jesus because you're, you're separated from God by your sin. And the, the temple system back in the day gives these specific regulations on how to approach God. And you can't do this and you can't do this and you can't do this, but you got to do this and you got to do this. And the system is temporary, temporary because it was never going to once and for all pay for all of the sin. But then Jesus shows up and he reconciles us to God for all time. He dies on the cross. Not only, this is good news here, he dies on the cross not only for all of our sins, but also for all of our empty religion, for all of our broken promises. And when he did that, what happened? Matthew 27. The veil that separated man from God's presence was torn in two. This cool little picture that we once again have access to God. And so no longer was there this way that we had to follow to get to God. No longer was our journey back to the garden completely blocked. Like you can come with this confidence and awe before this living God. And Hebrews chapter 10 summarizes this so well. This is something that you should underline and just grab a hold. The whole, whole chapter, Hebrews chapter 10, is unbelievable. We're just going to start in verse 5 and read what, what happened here. Therefore... As he was coming into the world, he said, You do not desire sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. This is Jesus, by the way. You didn't catch that. You did not desire sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. Verse 6, you did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. And then I said, See, it is written about me in the scroll I have come to do your will, O God. Verse 8, after he says above, you do not desire or delight in sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law. He then says, see, I have come to do your will. This is good. He takes away the first to establish the second. Okay, so he takes away the sacrifice to establish the obedience. Verse 10, by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Verse 11, every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time. He's talking Old Testament and some of what was functioning in the New Testament time, which can never take away sins. They stand day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices and it never takes away the sin, verse 12. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He did it once and he was what? Done. His words, it is finished, literally true. I didn't have to do it anymore. It's done. Sits down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. Cool promise. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. That's what he did. It's like you don't, you don't have to approach. You don't got to walk in with cute offerings or really, really well-worded prayers or making these beautiful vows that you probably can't keep anyway. Jesus wrecked all of that. And by wrecked, it's a positive thing by saying you no longer have to do it. He got rid of the sacrifice forever, and now he is just calling us to model what he did, which is obedience. Jump down to verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, like if you put yourself in that, in that picture that 
when he dies on the cross, the veil is, turn, is torn, and now you can just run into that sanctuary. You have this boldness to go in there because of the blood of Jesus. Verse 20, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. His vows he's going to keep. He's faithful. We can just trust what he has done. And so, so this is the cool thing. It, it recalls every part of the sacrificial system that we see in the Old Testament. And these sacrifices, they didn't cancel sin. They kind of covered it up temporarily. And they needed to be accompanied by obedience and following all the rules. And even then, they don't deal with the sin permanently. And they get repeated over and over and over and over again. And what Hebrews just explains to us is that Jesus fulfills both the requirements of the law and an obedience to God's will. He, he takes care of all of the sacrifices that needed to happen, and he completely obeys what God calls him to do. He deals with the sin once for all time, and so therefore we can boldly with confidence enter into the sanctuary, and we don't have to bring anything with us. You can boldly enter the sanctuary, and you don't got to go, hear my prayer. You don't got to go, look at my offering and my sacrifice. You don't have to say, God, I promise that if you do this, I'll do this. He's covered everything. You just get to boldly enter into it. And then verse 24 comes alive, and we're going to worship. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works. He says this is, a, this is a personal thing that you get to run into the sanctuary, but it becomes a corporate thing now. You get to watch out for one another, provoking one another to love and to good works. Verse 25, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other. And all the more as you see the day approaching. So we gather, we approach God without a front. We are faithful in our offering to him because the only offering we can bring is the, is the one that he gives us. We're humble in our prayers knowing that he's a good father. He knows what we're gonna ask before we ask it. Our words can be few. We can just be like, God, yeah, I got you. We're faithful in our offering. We're humble in our prayers. We're careful with our vows. Matthew five thirty seven. let what you say simply be yes or no. And we encourage one another. And not only will this be an unbelievable encouragement to you as you do this and you walk in this, but it is a faithful witness to those that are watching. This is why we're careful in our worship. And this is what Solomon is screaming. Let me pray for you and then we'll respond and worship. God, like, God I'm, I'm maybe preaching to myself a little bit more. Would you, would you remind me of the goodness. Would you remind, we even said it this morning, like, would we not just lose how good you are? Would that be stirred so deeply in us? Like the thoughts of the cross, yes. The thoughts of what Jesus did, yes. And it, it pays for all that sin, but, but what it got us is unbelievable. Like, I don't have to sit under the pressure of performance. I don't have to wander into the sanctuary and, and say the right things and do the right things and promise the right things. Those things are, are washed. I get to approach with confidence, not because of who I am, but because of what Jesus did. I get to, to go through the curtain that is his flesh and his blood and, and have access to the Father because of what he did. And it should stir up a confidence and, and an excitement to gather together with believers, to be encouraged in that, and then to go. 
and to make an impact for the world. That's, that's your desire. Not that we would cuddle with the insiders, but we see in Matthew chapter 9 that we'd welcome outsiders. Your words. You didn't, you didn't come for our sacrifice. You came to display mercy. And that mercy is put on, on beautiful display as we are just obedient to what you're calling us to. Go. Make disciples. Teaching them all I've commanded. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Being an encouragement to the world. Being a light. Being faithful. May that stir up within us. And so in this room, it's kind of one of two teams. And I don't want to assume that. For, for those of us that are Christ followers, may that become a mission that just pushes us forward. And for those of us that aren't, would you stir up within us a desire to know you? Would you stir up within us by your spirit a desire to, to follow you? Would we confess, as scripture says, that, that you are Lord. We believe that you died for our sins. We confess that with our mouth. We believe that in our heart. And, and by those two things, we're saved. So may you stir that in people tonight. But, but bigger than that, may the reminder of how seriously you take your glory and what you've accomplished through Jesus come alive in us. May we faithfully respond, not only in worship through song, but worship through obedience. Worship through living the life that you've called us to. May that be true and may we be known by that. In Jesus' name. Lovely.